And we're in the book of James again for a little while. And uh, we're at, uh, as Lori read from James chapter 5, uh, verses 7 to 11. We're actually going to just sit on uh, verses 7 to 9 for our time this morning. Last week, if you were uh, able to join us, we talked about the great illusion. And today I want to contrast that with the great reality. As I was thinking this through this past week, it struck me that it really does make a difference what you build your life upon. The kinds of things that you listen to, the kinds of things that you believe in, the kinds of things that you take to be true. We're in a time right now in, a, in an immediate sense where there's a lot of things being said and they are shaping the way that we live. Some of them reflect reality and some of them reflect um, um, mistruth or half-truth. And so it really does matter what you live your life according to. There's the, a great illusion which we looked at last week. And the great illusion is simply this, that this world is all that there is. And we looked at it in terms simply of money or where you put your treasure. That if you believe that this world is all there is, you will accumulate money for yourself and it will rot. And in fact, there's a good chance that you won't get to enjoy everything that you've accumulated. On the other hand, if you understand that this world is not all that there is, that there is a heaven and an earth to come, then you will treat your material resources differently. You will be generous. And so the great illusion is this illusion that the world is all there is. And if you believe that, you will live your life according to that. What James is countering that with now today is the great reality. And the great reality is, is fixed on two things that he states and one thing that is assumed. The great reality is that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, there will be time of final judgment. And the third aspect of that is there will be a general resurrection of every single human being. And that is the great reality. And that reality shapes our lives. As we think that through, a number of months ago, we spent some time as a congregation in the book of Revelation. And when you come to the very last two chapters of the book of Revelation, you find John speaking of something which is, is almost too hard to conceive. It's a reality that he paints for us of the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. And the reality of that new heaven and a new earth is that it will be, in many ways, unlike anything we've experienced here on earth. It can be maybe summarized in the fact that there is no more sin. And it's that reality, though, of a new heaven and a new earth that shapes our behavior, that shapes our living, that fills us with hope and guides and directs our actions and our words. And those who have that future reality fixed in their hearts and minds are better equipped to live here on this earth in a way that is pleasing to God. Well, James is doing the same thing. He's countering the great illusion that the world is all there is, with the great reality that Jesus is coming back at the end of this age. And at the end of this age, it will conclude with judgment, which will set the stage for eternity. As we think about the return of Christ and the coming of Jesus Christ that James mentions twice in these short verses, we realize that this is at the forefront of the New Testament emphasis. In fact, almost... Uh, one in 25 verses in the New Testament, or close to 300 verses in the New Testament, deal with the return of Jesus Christ. In 260 chapters, there are um, well over 300 mentions of this return. And if this is the case, why are we talking about it so little? 
Why are we thinking about it so little? Why isn't it having a greater impact in shaping our lives in the way that we live? Beloved, this is the blessed hope of the church, the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's the great confidence of the church, the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hand of the King of Kings. And in light of this, Titus would say to us that, that this, this, this hope, this reality, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, this hope of Jesus returning shapes the way that we live in this present age today because we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I've been working my way around these verses in James chapter 5, I've found it so helpful to, remind, to be reminded personally of the context in which I am to live my life, this reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the judgment that will accompany that. James uses both the coming of the Lord and the picture of a judge standing at the door to evoke responses in his readers. In response to the coming of the Lord, it should build patience within them. Not impatient, but they should patiently endure whatever comes in their past because they know that the coming of the Lord is near. And the reality of the judge standing at the door should, should stop their grumbling and should cultivate within them an understanding or a sense of steadfastness. And so what is this great reality then that James is talking about? The first is simply the coming of the Lord. The return of Jesus. Sometimes we will call it the second coming of the Lord. And you think to yourself, if you've been following with us in James, why all of a sudden does James mention the second coming? Is it out of place? Well, not at all. If, if you have been following through or been reading the book of James, you will see this as a, a great way of summarizing what he has been talking about already. He began his book by telling us in, other, in so many words, hang in there. Because the trial that you are enduring right now will end uh, one day. And at the end of that trial, God has promised a crown of life to all of those who have loved him. At the end of this age, after we have endured trials, there's a promise awaiting for us. In another place, James urges those who have um, heard the word of God to receive it with meekness because it is able to save their souls. And then he reminded them about the seduction of partiality. And he acknowledged that God has chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of a kingdom, which again, he has promised to those who love him. He's hinting again at a world to come. He's, he's hinting again at a life that will be entered into at the end of this present age where we will receive a promised crown and a promised kingdom. And last week, James warned about laying up treasures which we will forfeit if it's material treasures in the last day. And he talked about a slaughter to come. And so the Christian life is sustained by this hope in the return of Jesus Christ at the end of this age. It's the culmination of all that scriptures have said about the end of this age. And as I've indicated, it's captured in three concepts. The second coming of Jesus. 
the judgment that will follow and the resurrection of all the dead. This is the great reality that James is affirming and that scripture deals with. Let me ask you this point. What fills your mind when you read this phrase, the second coming? What, what floods into your heart and mind as you, as you hear that phrase, the coming of the Lord? I wonder if our memory banks, our biblical memory banks, just explode with truth. Remember, there's over 300 references to the second coming in the New Testament alone. Or do we kind of go, hmm, I think it's kind of like the first coming of Jesus. I, I know that it's going to come, but I, I really don't know a whole lot about it. Well, if you want to refresh your thinking about the second coming of Jesus, go to Matthew 24 and 25 this week. Take some time to read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Take some time to read 1 Corinthians 15. Or take some time to go through that passage that Lori read for us a little bit earlier from 2 Peter chapter 3. You might want to go to the notes that are provided on our website and look up the four different words that describe the coming of Jesus. The appearing of Jesus or the manifestation of Jesus at the end of time. The Bible tells us a lot about the second coming of Jesus. And it's those things that should flood our hearts and minds as we hear this truth declared. It's not a secretive return. Rather, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth is described as a personal, visible, glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As the disciples watched Jesus ascend up into heaven, they saw his body leave this earth and go up into heaven. The angels said to them, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. He's going to come back bodily and visibly. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 says, Then there will appear a sign in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory with great power and great glory. Another place in the scriptures, Revelation, says, Behold, he is coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the earth will wail on account of him. See, the scriptures are, are, are warning against trying to guess the day of his coming. You can go through the New Testament and you will find warnings that say, listen, don't try and pin it down to a day or an hour. Don't try and figure it out so you can mark it on a calendar. Don't try and look through what's happening in our world and in particular, even in what's happening in our days and say, this for sure means that Jesus is coming soon. But rather, as you read these scriptures, you will get a picture of what the last days look like. And remember, the last days encompass everything between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we sometimes make a mistake by, by substituting for the last days, the end times. The Bible doesn't do that for us. It tells us what will be characteristics of the last days, this thousands of years that we have been living in so far. And they urge us, though, to live differently in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. They instruct us how we should wait 
for the return of Jesus Christ. How we should use our gifts. How we should pursue holiness. How we should be characterized by watching and waiting and an eager anticipation for the return of Christ. These are the things that should flood into our minds when we hear this phrase, the coming of Jesus Christ. See, many of James's readers would have been familiar with this phrase, the coming of Christ. It wouldn't have been an empty phrase for them. It would have been filled with Jesus' teaching on the second coming. Some of them probably even heard it in person. Others would have gone to the Old Testament, and particularly some of the minor prophecies which speak of the day of the Lord. See, the coming of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord are, are referring, I believe, to the same day, the same time in, in, in eschatological history. Jesus summed up the events leading to the day of the Lord when he preached in a couple of times. This is how, work, how Luke describes it. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world certainly a, des a description of our times now but it has been a description of times in the past for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. See, to, to my thinking, the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord are part of the same day. Peter certainly united these two days, these two descriptions of the end of the last days. When he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And so what's that, how is that to affect us? Well, he says, since all these things are to take place, what sort of people ought you to be as you wait for these coming days? You ought to live in holiness and in godliness. So James here is using familiar themes and familiar phrases, the coming of the Lord to remind his readers to be patient in unsettled times, to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, to not be dissuaded, to not be distracted, to keep their perspective, to hang on to reality, to not lose hope, to not lose sight of the great promise. Loved ones, the great illusion that Peter described in the verses at the start of chapter 5, that this world is all there is, is not what should shape our lives. Rather, the great reality of the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is what should shape our lives. The second thing that Peter talks about is the presence of the judge. This is another aspect of, of, of the world that should shape our reality this this is part of this great reality judgment when Jesus comes again on that great day of the Lord he will put all things right and he will sit as judge over the nations and also judge over every one of us Matthew describes this in a couple of ways. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, that's the coming of the Lord. And all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. 
And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In another place, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, the coming of the Lord is, is in, in conjunction with the judgment of all mankind. In a, another place in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Paul, talking to people in Corinth, says the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Why repent? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know these great realities will take place? The coming of the Lord, the great and final judgment, and the resurrection of all, we know they will come to pass because Jesus has been raised from the dead. In Ecclesiastes we read, For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes to the people in Corinth and it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus, in another place in Matthew, says, I tell you, the day of, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified. By your words you'll be con condemned. And then one more text. There's so many others. But from Romans chapter 14. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be both the Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on anyone any longer, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Loved ones, I, I say this carefully, but I say this truthfully. Is this not a motivator for behavior? Is this not a motivator for how we live our lives here on this earth? This great reality that not only is Jesus coming again, but that he will come to judge the world and all humanity? Behold, says James, the judge is standing at the door. And just as these words are from God to give us clear focus on how we live in this age. So this was the intent of James as he reminds those that he's writing to of the judgment of God. 
Remember, in the, in the middle of chapter 2, he talks about judgment in the context of impartiality. He says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. In chapter one or chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. In 4, verse 12, he talks about us not speaking evil of one another. He says, because there is only one lawgiver and one judge, and he is able to save you or destroy you. And then in verse 5 of chapter 5, he talks there about the day of slaughter, which is a reference again to the day of judgment. See, these are again references that the people of, 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 of the first century that James is writing to would understand. And they too would go back to the day of the Lord passages which reminded them not only that God was coming back, but that judgment would accompany his return. And so what's the intended result of this? Why is James telling us these things? Why is he reminding his readers that the judge is near the door? Well, as I can see it, there's at least a couple. One is to curb sinful behavior. Either we live under an illusion and we do what we want and we do what we please. Or we live under reality that we will give an account for our lives. There is only one lawgiver and one judge who we will give an account to. Many of us have just finished filing our taxes. That's a sort of accounting. We explain what we made. We explain how we have made it. We justify what we have done with our money and why we have claimed this expense and not that expense. And we know, though, that the CRA really has the final say in what we have done and how we have used our money and how we have accounted for it. Well, in a much greater way, at the end of this age, there will be an accounting for how we have lived our lives before the righteous judge. There's another reason, I wonder, though, that James put this here and that we find it throughout the Bible, is to urge us to repentance. In fact, this is what we have read already from Acts chapter 17, where it says there, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Why? Why has he given us a break? Why has he cut us some slack? Why has God been patient with us? So that we might repent. And why should we repent? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so I think this is the thing that James is putting before the people and he's putting it before us as we're reminded of this great reality of the judgment that God is giving us in this time that we live right now this opportunity to repent to turn from our sins, to turn from our wicked ways, to turn from living a lie and living under illusion and re rethink how we live in terms of the great reality. And it's a wonderful reality that God gives us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to find Him to be sufficient for us, to find Him, in Him, the forgiveness of our sins, the payment of the penalty of our sins, the bearing of our curse, and from Christ we receive righteousness so that we can stand before God and endure the judgment. And we endure the judgment because all of our sins have been judged in Christ Jesus when he died for us on the cross. This is an opportunity like none other we have right now. 
to realize that the judgment has not yet come, but it is coming. And that God has been patient with us and given us the opportunity to turn from our sinful ways, to look to Jesus Christ, and to be saved. Jesus spoke these words of warning again and again. James has picked up on those. Today is the day of salvation. The patience of the Lord is not infinite. It is finite. And there is coming a day when his patience will end. That is reality, loved ones. I was thinking about the need of repentance. My mind is just kind of going in a couple places. But there are those who, who get it. And they hear something like this, and all of a sudden their heart begins to turn inside of them. And they think, yeah, you're right. I've not been living in terms of this great reality. And then there's those who don't give a rip, who continue to look at God as though he doesn't exist and though he doesn't impact our lives. And I was shocked not long ago. I think it was actually on April 17th when the governor of New York, Governor Como, was reflecting on the decrease in the numbers of those who had contracted this virus that is in our world right now. And these are his words. He says, the number is down because we brought the number down. And he emphasized that God did not do it. Faith did not do it. Destiny did not do it. A lot of pain and suffering did it. That's how it works. It's math. And if you don't continue to do that, you're going to see that number go up again and that tragedy will be, or what tragedy it will be if that number goes up again. That is living in an illusion. That is living outside of the context of the great reality. There is a God. And He is involved in our world. And He is aware of everything that we say and do. And one day we will all stand before Him and give an account for our lives. So James talks about this great reality. He says... The Lord is coming again. And he says, there is a time of judgment where we will be judged. But notice one more thing, and I want to just bring this before us. The nearness of these two things. In James, he says of the coming of the Lord, particularly in verse 8, he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then of the judge, he says, the judge is standing at the door. What does that suggest if it doesn't suggest a nearness or a closeness? This isn't something that's far away. This isn't something to be trifled with. There's a reality here that James wants to drive home to us that the coming of the Lord is near and that the judge is right at the door. How do we take this seriously? Do we take this seriously? You see, sometimes we might be troubled and we think, well, it's been 2,000 years since James first spoke these words. How can he speak of nearness? Or are we just kind of sitting here twiddling our thumbs and believing something that really is never going to take place? How are we to think of this nearness that James writes about? Well, we're not to think of it in terms of imminence. I'm not aware of any English version of the Bible that uses the words imminent or imminence in them to describe the coming of the Lord. And if we mean by imminent 
So far as we know, no predicted event will necessarily precede the coming of the Lord. Then we're talking about something different than biblical nearness. But if, if by nearness we are thinking suddenness or unexpectedness or incalculability or the possibility of an occurrence at any moment, and if this is what Scripture teaches, then how do we feel the full force of the many exhortations to watch for and be ready for and stay awake for the coming of the Lord? On the other hand, it is biblical to maintain that there are certain events that have yet to occur before the coming of the Lord, and yet still be able to maintain a sense of the nearness of that coming. Jesus described events of the last days that have yet to unfold, but don't preclude a sense of nearness. In other words, we can think of things still that have to happen, and that doesn't discount nearness. For instance, Jesus describes events that will occur before his second coming, which should remind us that his return is near. For instance, Mark says, So also, when you see these things taking place, things in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms, you know that he is near at the very gates. Scripture speaks in the perfect tense as a completed action that the coming of the Lord is near. This is what James says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Scripture speaks of the present tense of the day of the Lord drawing near. It's approaching. It's right now getting closer and closer. Scripture also teaches or talks about the coming day of the Lord as, uh, um, as something that we understand in comparative terms. Salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The coming of the Lord is nearer today than it was two months ago or two years ago or 20 years ago. So the teaching of the Bible is that the coming of the Lord is drawing near. It's getting closer and closer and closer. We might, it's not a great analogy, but we might speak of a, of a husband that's returning home from a long business trip. We speak of it in sense of nearness. Oh, he, he's coming home at the end of the month. Nine more sleeps. And so his coming is near. And after eight sleeps, we, we say, well, it's nearer. Or we can say, you know, a dad just called from the airport and his plane has landed. He's coming home. His return has come near. He's still not there, but his return has come near. Or we can all pile in the car and we be heading to the airport in Nanaimo to pick him up because we know now that his return is near. Or we can say that his return home is nearer today than it was when he left. I think these maybe help us understand this nearness. So James reminds his readers not to become impatient, not to become duped, not to give up their confidence in the great reality of the promises of God's word. And that nearness is not inconsistent with delay. And I think Peter's words are so helpful in this. We'll get to them in a second, but, but we, we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, that the coming of the Lord will not come until the gospel has been preached to the whole world. I don't know exactly what that means, but there is a worldwide reality of the gospel being proclaimed that has to precede the coming of the Lord. 
We know that the coming of the Lord will be increased or will be preceded by the increase in the persecution of the followers of the Lamb. Christians until their number is complete. There is a number of martyrdoms that must take place before the Lord can return. We know that the coming of the Lord will not take place until the lawless one has been revealed. That's what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But the bigger the event, the farther it casts its shadow. Some people are already saying Christmas is near. It's still a long way off, but it's such a big event. It, it, it consumes so much of our thought and so much of our energy that people are already speaking of Christmas being near. Well, I can't think of a bigger event in world history than the return of Christ. And so there's a sense in which it is near. Some of you may be familiar with the Narnia series and how C.S. Lewis describes two different spheres of, of operation that, that are taking place concurrently. The children in the story would slip through a magic wardrobe and they would enter into this marvelous world of Narnia. And they would be there for uh, days and weeks and months and even years, and yet when they return home through the magic wardrobe, they find that almost no time has passed here on earth. At least no perceptibility or no perception of any time has passed. How then could we understand the relationship between earth years and the eternal years or the timeless sphere of the life of God? This is how Peter saw this problem of the nearness and the return of the Lord worked out. He reminds us, first of all, God is not slow in keeping his promise that Jesus will come. Don't ever allow yourself to go down to that thinking and say, because he hasn't come today, that somehow God is slow. God is not slow. His time scale, Peter says, is not the same as ours. It's a different time scale. And thirdly, what we might call delay is actually an opportunity. It's a great opportunity for us, but it's also an opportunity for us to tell others about Jesus Christ. To say, listen, he's not come yet, it's near, but have you thought of him? Have you thought about what it means to put your trust in him? Have you thought about why you need a savior? Now is the time to do it because his coming is near. God is patient with you, he's given you an opportunity. Oh, scoffers will scoff and we hear them scoffing, but the day will come. James is not mistaken in calling these people for a sustained readiness to maintain this, this expectation, this anticipation of this certain great reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming in judgment. Rather, what James is telling us, we'll look at this next week, is our stance ought to be, okay, I will wait patiently. I will wait steadfastly. I will allow that great reality to shape the way that I talk, to shape the way that I think, to shape the way that I live, to shape the way that I act. Here, loved ones, is something to hang our lives upon. His coming is near. The judge is at the threshold of history. This is the great reality. Let that truth shape your thinking, your speaking, and your living in these days in which we live. Father, 
we come to you today. And I'm thankful for your word, which again and again in various ways reminds us of things that are true. Six days a week, we can be bombarded with things that are not true. With illusions that give us the force of thinking this matters and this is real. But only until we come into your presence, only until we come into your tabernacle, only until we come before your word do we actually see what reality is. Are we actually able to discern between illusion and reality? Father, as we head into this week, would you fill our heads and our hearts with this great reality, the coming of Jesus Christ, which is at hand. And a picture of the judge who is standing at the door. May those things influence our lives and not other things. May those things determine our actions and our speaking, not other things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.